Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. You may have already picked up some helpful information about facelift and necklift by listening to the earlier episode dedicated to this subject, episode number 12. And maybe you've even considered having a facelift, but we're a bit gun-shy because of the general anesthesia? Well, what if you could have this surgery while awake, yet numbed up and comfortable? In today's episode, I interview a colleague who has mastered the technique of in-office awake facelift surgery. By awake, I mean you would have a local anesthetic or numbing medicine and may take an oral pill to relax you, yet not have to have an IV. Some people are even comfortable enough that they doze off during the procedure. Dr. Keith Hodge shares with us his thoughts about the benefits and safety of this procedure, and he provides some general insights about various choices and techniques in the realm of facial rejuvenation. Let's take a listen. We are lucky today to have Dr. Keith Hodge with us, who's going to discuss facelifts and in-office surgery. Just for clarification, Dr. Hodge is with Monarch Plastic Surgery in the Kansas City area, and that is the practice that I did retire from, so we are former colleagues. I would like for you, Dr. Hodge, to tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you're from originally, and where you trained. I'm originally from Texarkana, Texas. I trained at KU Plastic Surgery. And um, I was fortunate enough to meet the people at Monarch Plastic Surgery. So Dr. Newham was one of the people who hired me out of residency. So I want to thank you for that. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, thank you. Well, we're just thrilled to have you. So let's start with talking about the concept of doing surgical procedures in the office. Facelift is the primary one we're going to talk about today, but what are your thoughts? What is your philosophy about in-office procedures? Well, I started doing small in-office procedures, like taking off lesions and things like that, but it progressed, and I began doing facelifts in the office, I think around 2009. And um, so today, I'm very comfortable doing things in the office, and I think the benefits are that you avoid all the general anesthetic risks. So I think it's the safest way to do anything as long as someone's comfortable. So I think the right candidate would be someone who has a calmer personality and someone who doesn't mind feeling the injections to get you numb and comfortable. So we do, we do facelifts, we do small liposuction areas, and of course, taking off lesions and things like that. You know, when I was practicing, I preferred to do all my facelifts in the operating room. 
uh, just because I felt more comfortable there uh, with the patient asleep. I wasn't so worried about the patient feeling anything, uh, and I felt like with the monitored care that the anesthesiologist was giving, there was some safety in that as well. As a counterpoint to that, tell me what you think. Are there certain advantages of having a patient awake who can move for you or demonstrate something that you may need to see in terms of motor function or anything like that? Well, I think, yeah, I think there are a couple of things. One, I like the fact that the endotracheal tube is not in my way. And for our listeners, the endotracheal tube is that tube that does come out of the mouth during a general anesthetic. That is the way that the gas is introduced to the patient's lungs. Uh, so yes, that could be in the way for sure. That and they did not get the IV fluids that they would get during a general anesthesia procedure. So I feel like they have less swelling after surgery. The other thing is there's no recovery afterwards. They just walk out the door with their bandage on. They don't have to go to the recovery room to hang out and wake up from their anesthetic. That's a good point. The anesthesia recovery from a general anesthetic is pretty significant. And typically, patients would have to be around for a good hour or so afterwards, and the nursing staff would make sure that their vital signs are back to normal and they're alert before they could even be discharged, and then they would have to be driven home by someone else. Now, when you're doing a facelift in the office, someone is still driving the person home because they've had some sedation of some type? Yes. It's not strictly local anesthetic. We pre-medicate our patients with a pain medication, typically a Percocet or something like that, depending on drug allergies. Also give them a Halcyon pill, which is a sleeping pill to make them more relaxed. And usually I'll also give a Clonidine pill, which is uh, for blood pressure because uh, patients are nervous that day and I want their blood pressure to be normalized during the procedure to help prevent bleeding during the procedure and after the procedure. And also I find that Clonidine makes the other two medications more effective. So people come in pretty relaxed for the most part. Where do they take those medicines? Typically at home, unless they live a ways away, I like them to take it an hour prior to the procedure so it's on board when we start. Uh, now you used to do facelifts under general anesthetic, you know, in, in the previous times of your career, but what have you heard from patients lately in terms of their thoughts about doing this in the office? Are they preferring this? Are they apprehensive? Well, when I introduce the idea in the office during the consultation procedure, most are apprehensive and I get some pretty odd looks. But once I kind of imagine, <laughs> but once I kind of explain the process and they come around, and once I tell them that not only have I done over 500 facelifts awake in the office, I've done the procedure on my own mother, and so that kind of gives them some confidence and reassurance. That's right. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, tell us the type of incisions that you typically make, and tell us at what level you're doing your dissection to try to accomplish your standard facelift. Well, I would say that I offer, I think, all the common techniques, and that depends on the patient's age, not just their chronologic age, but their biologic age, mm. and, and what they're trying to accomplish. And so I will lay out different options for my patients and go with the one that they want to proceed with. So I will do plication-only techniques. Plication just means folding and tacking things together to make them a little tighter. Right, which is usually your younger patient. And um, SMAS, S-M-A-S, which stands for Superficial Musculoaparnotic System, is uh, the layer below the skin, which I feel like is a strength layer of the face. And we use that to manipulate and rejuvenate the face and neck region. So most things involve working on the SMAS. If you just do a skin only facelift, it's not going to last very long in my opinion. So 
uh, when working the SMAS, you could excise the SMAS. You can uh, have a strip of SMAS to help rejuvenate the lateral cheek and neck. You can do also something called a deep plane facelift, which you make an incision in the SMAS. You take advantage of the mobility of the medial SMAS. In other words, the area in the SMAS in front of the parotid toward the, the center of the cheek. That SMAS is very mobile. And so once you have that dissected and you can lift it up, it's a more powerful technique. So my incisions depend on what we're doing, but most commonly I'll either do a SMAS flap where I am um, incising the SMAS along the cheekbone and in front of the ear and raising a flap to rejuvenate the cheek and jawline, or I'm doing a deep plane facelift. Uh, more commonly I'm doing the deep plane because it's just a more powerful technique. And once I explain the difference in what I feel I can do and I can accomplish in my hands, most patients choose the deep plane. And how soon afterwards do your patients typically see some improvement? Honestly, their neck and their jawline look better day one. Ah, They're nice. obviously swollen, but they can already see the rejuvenation effects, even with the swelling. So that's, that's nice that you take the bandage off. Like, oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I was going for. Yeah, that's that's got to be a good feeling for both of you. Yes. And do you feel like there are any techniques that you do that are a little different than most surgeons or... Uh, are all of these things you're describing relatively standard? They're relatively standard, but I believe I'm the only surgeon offering the deep playing technique in Kansas City, and I know I'm the only surgeon offering it awake in the office. And as we go back to the consultation phase, when the person is coming in to see you, they're thinking about a facelift, they're not sure if they need it. How do you decide if that's truly what they need or if they could get by with some filler or some type of resurfacing of the skin or something like that? What, what is your mental process when you're evaluating a patient? Well, I think everyone ages differently, but I would say in general, fillers are for People who start to lose volume in their 30s and 40s, and even 50s, and it can be an adjunct to rejuvenation. But I think once most people in their 50s and beyond, a filler is not going to uh, completely rejuvenate the face. As we age, we lose volume, we lose elasticity, and a filler is not going to just rejuvenate that unless you are really overfilled. And I like for my patients to look natural. That overfilled look is usually not something that patients want anyway. Do your patients walk away understanding that pretty well, or do they offer any differing opinions, shall I say? Yeah, some people come in knowing what they want, mm -hmm. and others come in saying, what do I need? And so I assess their face, and I show them what I see, you know, different parts of their aging face, and I tell them how we can rejuvenate that and what their options are. You know, I think the ideal rejuvenation procedure for most people, not all, but most people would include a facelift, volume replacement, and skin resurfacing. I mean, that's the trifecta of facial rejuvenation. And most need all three. Not all, not all patients want all three or not all at once, but at least discuss that. Because a facelift is going to rejuvenate the structures you have, but if you're missing volume, it's not going to replace that volume. And that's why I don't like an excision technique for like a smastectomy. I want to, I want to obtain all the volume the patient has. And a lot of times I'm wanting to put fat in addition to that. And we can do fat with a facelift at the same time. And that's my favorite way to rejuvenate the face because then you get the volume as well as the resuspension of the ectotic structures or droopy structures. When I was practicing, I favored the multi-layer approach to facial rejuvenation as well. So the facelift will reduce the amount of excess skin that is present and reposition the tissues. 
and the volume level, as you're talking about, will restore any lost or drooping, if you will, fatty tissue that normally provides a youthful appearance. And then the resurfacing you're talking about is the superficial layer of skin. It doesn't really treat extra skin. It treats the quality or texture of the skin. So I agree with you that combination approach is probably the best way to give patients the look that they're really wanting. Let's go back and talk about the concept of a mini facelift. What is that, and when would you choose that over a standard or full facelift? A mini facelift is really what the surgeon deems it to be. It's not a technique, but it, I think it's trying to convey that we're going to use a short incision and do some minor things to rejuvenate the face without making a standard facelift incision and doing more deeper dissections, which are more advanced techniques and incur more risks. So for me, a mini facelift would be a short scar facelift with plication techniques. Consideration of all of these things we're talking about, how much of the neck appearance is affected and how do you address the neck in general? Because so many of the patients come in complaining not so much about their lower face per se, but they're not liking the banding or folds in the neck and they want something done with that. So how do you approach that? Again, I think it depends on the degree of the uh, aging process the patient's undergoing. I think even with the mini, you can get some neck rejuvenation with the plication techniques, but most people uh, that I see that come in for a facelift need more than that. And that's why I most commonly will do either a smash flap technique or the deep plane technique. And I can suture that in a superior direction and lateral direction and correct minor banding through the lateral approach, which is the incision you'd make in front of the ear for a standard facelift. If patients have more significant banding or they have subplatismal fat, meaning the fat is deep to that platysmal muscle you can see causing a bulge in the central neck below the chin, then I'd make an incision below their chin to remove that fat if necessary because you can't get it with liposuction. It's too deep. So you can do it under direct vision, which is a safe way of doing it mm -hmm. uh, because it can be a vascular area, yeah. lots of blood vessels. And then you can actually sew the two medial edges of the platysma muscle together to give a very sharp angle below the chin and, and the central neck. And that's so often what patients come in wanting. They miss having that nice angle to the neck and they want that restored. So what you're describing is a way to help restore that. And what I'm hearing you say is that depending upon how much improvement the patient actually needs, you can do that through your standard facelift incision, or you may have to make a separate incision under the chin to access the area of the neck where you may not be able to reach otherwise and do some tightening sutures in that region, and that's called a platysmoplasty. And again, the platysma is a thin fan-shaped muscle that goes across the front of our neck almost from side to side, and it is the thing that is causing the folding or the banding or the turkey neck, as we like to say. Uh, so tightening that muscle can really make an improvement. How often do you think, and I, I know it depends on the patient, but how often do you think you actually end up having to add that additional incision and do a platysmoplasty versus getting most of it taken care of from your outer incision? Again, like you said, it depends on the severity. I would say probably 10% of my patients end up with a 
a platysmoplasty because the more deep planes I do, the less incisions I have to make below the chin for the platysmoplasty because it's such a powerful procedure. A lot of people will enjoy hearing that. Uh, now let's talk about fat. We touched on that before, and you mentioned fat grafting, but we also sometimes end up doing uh, liposuction or fat removal in the face. And so could you explain the areas where each of those would be appropriate and how you assess a patient for what they really need? When I'm doing my consultation, I assess the face of the neck. I think they're really one unit, and you really can't rejuvenate one without the other. Mm-hmm. And so almost all my patients get neck liposuction because I want to treat the jowl area with liposuction before I resuspend it and rejuvenate it. And I think the other benefit is you're going to get skin tightening from liposuction in the neck. And so if I have a thin patient with no excess adipose tissue, I still will often do discontinuous undermining off suction. The undermining means lifting the tissue, separating them a little bit so they're more mobile. Right. So I'm lifting the skin off that platysmal muscle. So I think the skin will just redrape better and hopefully I'm getting a few percentage points of skin tightening along with that. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so almost all my patients get neck liposuction with it. And again, I'm focusing on the jawline to treat the jowl. Any submental, in other words, any central below the chin adipose tissue that's mm-hmm. also present to give them that sharper angle that everybody wants. Very common place that people are uh, self-conscious about is that fullness they can get under the chin and loss of that nice angle there that they had when they were younger. Uh, so liposuction is a good way to address that, but even just the separation of the skin from the deeper tissues in that area allows you to redrape better and get a better contour as well. Are there some tools that you use with your liposuction that help with skin tightening as you're doing this process uh, in the neck and under the chin? When I'm doing a facelift, I usually do not combine other skin tightening devices. If I'm doing isolated neck liposuction, I will often add either the laser, which is, uh, we use smart lipo, which is laser assisted liposuction, or I will use Renuvion, which is radio frequency heating uh, combined with liposuction. And actually, the studies show that Renuvion actually adds up to 30% skin tightening at one year, which is even better than laser-assisted liposuction. And so both of those devices create some heat. They create a thermal energy, and that helps tighten up the tissues in the area and the undersurface of the skin and give you, it doesn't shrink wrap the skin, of course, but it gives you just a little bit better contour in the process of doing that liposuction. So you can really refine your results. And then what about fat grafting? Where in the face might you take some of this suctioned fat and reposition it to help uh, rejuvenate the person's appearance? Well, typically people age, and as they age, they lose elasticity, they lose actual fat volume, and they actually even lose some bony volume. So when I'm trying to recreate that youthful look, I generally start in the temple region and add fat there. We've all seen people look really hollow in that lateral temple region. That's a sign of aging. The mid-face cheek area, obviously some people maintain that very well and some don't. Uh, Even the uh, lower eyelid, the tear trough area, that's a very unforgiving area, so I'm very conservative there. The nasolabial fold, which is the smile line, you know, between the the, uh, nose and the lip. And also Mm -hmm. the the medical term is the pre-jowl sulcus, which is that crease from your lip to your jawline in front of the jowl. That is an area mm-hmm. that I like to rejuvenate, and even the chin itself. 
So those are the most common areas that I will add fat. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize what a difference highlighting and augmenting, improving some of these small little areas can make in terms of their age appearance and their overall appearance. I think temples is one in particular that patients never think about typically, yet when you improve that with a little fat grafting or a filler or something else, uh, and they look at the before and after pictures, it can make such a difference to them. And one more benefit is that you're actually adding stem cells. The fat has stem cells, which are rejuvenation cells that can actually improve the texture of the skin itself. That's an added bonus. Absolutely. Who wouldn't love that? You know, I did want to talk about what a patient might experience, what a patient might go through when they're undergoing this process of a facelift in the office. They would take medication before to relax them, sedate them a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're still awake, however, and they come to the office, and then what happens? Well, the first thing we'll do is uh, take their vital signs, which includes their blood pressure, their pulse, and their pulse oximeter, which is the oxygen reading in the blood, to make sure they are stable and still doing well, like no one's taking too much medication. That's never yeah, happened that's to us. Good. <laughs> but, so we want to get a, a baseline uh, vital sign measurements, and then we... Uh, give them a little hairdo where we get their hair out of the way so we can do what we want to do with bobby pins. And we mark the incisions. And if I'm doing a mini lift or a uh, smash flap facelift, the incision starts in the hairline and follows the curvature of the ear to camouflage the incision. And if we're doing a mini lift, that incision will be just in front of the ear. If we're doing a, a smash flap or deep plane, it, it continues behind the ear and even the lateral extension to the hairline. If I'm doing a deep plane, I will actually make my incision, instead of going straight up above the ear, I will curve it and follow that temporal hairline because I need to mm -hmm. see what I'm doing and my dissection's further out towards the, uh, the corner of the eye. And so that's the different incisions that I use. So we mark the incision and then we turn our procedure room into an operating room, meaning that we follow sterile technique. Everybody's in a hat, mask, gown, gloves. We prep the skin with betadine and then we uh, start anesthetizing the patient. And so, like I said, usually I do some neck liposuction, so I will give them five injections, and then I will make access points to anesthetize the soft tissues. I use a blunt cannula, and our anesthetic consists of lidocaine and epinephrine. The lidocaine is a local anesthetic, makes them numb, and the epinephrine is a vasoconstrictor, which uh, decreases our blood loss, decreases bruising, decreases vessel damage so then i just let them sit for 15 minutes while they while they get numb so i want them very comfortable and hopefully they're just taking a nap by that point most patients sleep through the procedure or at least doze in and you know do they're dozing off and on and they're very comfortable and halcyon has some amnestic properties so a lot of people come the next day and go i don't remember what happened which is <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> if something's uncomfortable you don't want to remember that they don't remember it yeah so um, so after the uh, patient is anesthetized, I will do liposuction first, and then we follow with the facelift. And the whole process takes about three to three and a half hours, depending on what we're doing. And we haven't talked about this, but sometimes I'm doing upper eyelids as well. That's, that's a common add-on procedure, and that takes about an extra 45 minutes. And you would do that before or after? I would do the eyelids first. So I would, if we're going to do the eyelids, I would, I would mark the eyelids first anesthetize them and then while that's getting out I would anesthetize their neck and their cheeks and so by the time I get done with that their eyelids are numb and ready to go. Very efficient. And yeah we try to decrease their time. Uh, now what about drains when you're suturing a patient closed 
You know, sometimes we put a drain in to try to provide a method for any fluid or blood that's building up inside to come out. Do you like to use drains? Do you feel like they're necessary or do you just decide on a case-by-case basis? In the office, I don't use drains unless someone is just, unless someone is just really oozy. I mean, I try to take my time with cautery to make sure there's no oozing, and obviously no active bleeding. But, you know, the other thing is, though, that you have to deal with the local anesthesia you've placed in the soft tissues. Some of that's going to absorb, but some of that manages to get into the field while you're working as well. So I don't use drains in the office, but I will say, and I tell my patients ahead of time, if you have a significant fluid collection the next day, I'm going to remove a couple of sutures and express it and close it back. Kind of milk it out. Milk it out, exactly. Because And it's not a hematoma, it's just serous fluid that's just accumulated from the tumescent technique and just the dissection of the soft tissues. So that happens, I would say, maybe one in 50 patients. I'm sure plenty of patients would be very happy to know they don't have to have a drain. Yes. They're good when they are needed, but if you can get by without one, that's nice. And then what about sutures, stitches? When did those come out? Well, everything's closed in layers because we want to keep our tension off the skin so we get the thinnest scar possible. So my routine is to remove the sutures in front of the ear at week one and remove the sutures behind the ear at week two because I feel like any skin irregularities are behind the ear. You know, our first incision is shorter than our second incision because we're moving tissues. And so what patients don't know, we're kind of like a seamstress or a tailor. You know, we're trying to work out the pleats and do things to make the patient look really good. And those incisions are not the same length. So you want it perfect in front of the ear. So it's not always perfect behind the ear. And so I leave them in longer behind the ear for that reason. So you can hide it behind the ear is what you're saying. Yes. And that's a nice way to go because uh, that's not what's seen by the rest of the public. And then what do you tell patients about recovery and downtime, activity restrictions, things like that? The day of the procedure, I place my patients in a soft, fluffy bandage that goes around their head and neck. And they, then post-op day one, they come in for a thinner garment that's like a spandex garment with a Velcro strap that goes around their head and neck. And I ask them to wear that continuously for a week. And I tell them continuously means that if you need to run an errand or you want to go to dinner with your friends, you can go. Without the bandage? Without the bandage. But otherwise, right. I want them to wear it and I want them to sleep in it. And the second week, I just have them sleep in it. And that provides... What for your patients? Compression, which I think makes them feel more comfortable and also helps with the uh, post-op swelling everyone's going to have. And how long do you uh, tell the patients to expect the swelling in general? Well, I tell them when we're done, I show them their face before I put the bandage on. I want them to see, you know, what's been done and so what to expect. So they're not, they're not surprised. And so they're obviously very wide when I'm done because of the local anesthetic that's still present in the soft tissues. Mm -hmm. And from the dissection. And so I tell them, you know, even at two weeks, you're still going to be a little wide. Your face will look wide to you. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't bruised, you're going to look pretty good with your hair down, especially women with longer hair, because it'll make the face look thinner. But I have to say, even my patients with short hair, men and women, the scars really just kind of go away in a few weeks. I mean, you just don't notice it because of where it's placed. And because I think we're all used to seeing a few little wrinkles and things in front of people's ears and you really don't expect people's ears when you're talking to them. You're really looking at their face, you know? This is so true. <laughs> so it's really, uh, the, the scar is really not a big deal. The one thing I do caution them is that their lateral cheek will be numb for several months. And that's odd for a man because he's trying to shave and he doesn't really feel, you know, his skin normally. You have to be a little more vigilant. Yeah. What percent do you think uh, of your facelift patients are men? Less than 5%. 
The other thing with men, you know, they're more vascular. So I tell them a female has about a 1% risk of a hematoma, but a male has a 4% risk of a hematoma. And a hematoma is a blood collection that can build up from bleeding. Correct. Postoperatively, that could require an incision or a redo surgery to get the blood out. A man's beard just makes that area more vascular. They need more blood supply to provide the hair follicles. And the other thing about men that I tell them is that, you know, once I rejuvenate your neck, you're going to have to shave behind your ear. Oh. I mean, because, I, I mean, we're really pulling things tight and, you know, you're going to have hair bearing skin behind your ear after surgery. And if it's white hair, it really can't be lasered because the laser needs the pigment to find the hair follicle. And so, you know, it's a minor thing. But... Small price to pay for <laughs> looking good. That's right. That's right. And then activity restrictions, what do you tell them in terms of working out or lifting, pushing, pulling? I ask them to really take it easy. Nothing heavier than a 10-pound, you know, gallon of milk or something the first couple of weeks. No working out for two weeks. And then we'll reassess based on their swelling and how their incisions look. But most people can do something light in two or three weeks, and in a month, they can do whatever they want. And then, of course, with any surgery we do, there's always a risk of complications. In this particular type of surgery, a facelift, what do you worry about the most? And what would you do if those problematic complications do arise? Well, I tell patients the main risks are uh, bleeding. And I tell them I'm going to take my time to make sure you're not bleeding when I close your incision. Infection is another risk. We give our patients antibiotics. A nerve injury is always a risk. And I tell them that um, I usually don't see one of the branches of the facial nerve. There are five branches to the facial nerve. I usually do not see them. Sometimes in a deep plane, I do see a, a nerve branch. And I tell them that I'm spreading, not cutting. So as long as you're spreading, you're not going to cut a nerve. Less likely for sure, yeah. Yeah, you can bruise a nerve just by the dissection. And a bruise means that the nerve's not going to function properly, so you could have some asymmetry. I tell patients that there are five branches, and the one branch is the marginal mandibular branch. And that's the one I'm most concerned about because it innervates the muscles that let you smile. And I tell them that just with liposuction alone, I could bruise the nerve, not to mention the facial dissection. And so... My own personal experience is that I've had four marginal mandibular neuropraxias, which is a medical term for nerve bruise in my career, and they're always temporary. They always come back. But the patient needs to know that I cannot see that nerve, and so I can't really avoid it. I'm just passing by it with a cannula and bruising it, and that can cause the nerve to not function properly and give you a smiley symmetry for days to weeks. That's the one I worry about the most because sure. I really can't see the nerve and I don't want that to happen to anyone, but yeah. it is a very small risk. Considering how many you've done, that's a pretty small number of problems. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Other complications would be a wound healing issue, or and that's really about it. What do you think about uh, the concept of lifting up some of that tissue, particularly skin, and laying it back down uh, in terms of risk of its uh, having trouble surviving afterwards? Well, the good news is the face and neck are very vascular. Yes. And so unless someone's a smoker, I don't really worry about it. Um, I will not do a facelift on a smoker for that reason because um, the nicotine causes vasoconstriction. The only other thing I would say is that you could theoretically dissect too superficially, and that could cause a problem with the vascularity of the soft tissue. So you got to find the fine line of you want your flaps thin so you provide um, good contouring, and you want to have enough bulk to your smash, the deeper layer. So you make your flaps too 
thick, your smash is too thin to work with. But on the other hand, if you went too far the other direction and made your skin too thin, you could compromise that. So you got to find that happy medium. you got to find the Goldilocks layer, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> Are there any future developments or improvements in technique that you foresee or you would like to see with facelifts? I'm not aware of any new technique on the horizon. I, mean, I think technology continues to improve. And there's going to be something you know, where the next generation of surgeons will probably be doing facelifts without an incision. Yeah. I'm sure that'll happen eventually. Yeah. Well, that'd be fantastic. You know? Too bad we probably and, won't be uh, around to see that. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And all the other things with the, uh, you know, the stem cells will probably continue to improve as well to rejuvenate tissues and mm-hmm. help us look younger longer. Excellent so. point. Yes. We'll be looking forward to that. All right. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, I, I do want to finish up with um, three questions. First question is, what do you love about doing these procedures, facelifts in the office? Well, I love, I love seeing a smile on someone's face after surgery. I love the technical challenge of it. And I, in the office, I just love the fact that I feel like I'm doing it the safest way possible. I mean, we're avoiding any of the serious complications of general anesthesia. And I love to operate, and I do most of my cases under general anesthesia, but you know, in the, especially the older patient, you know, we can avoid the risk of a blood clot or something like that. We can avoid problems with the lungs after surgery. We can avoid just some serious things by doing it awake. Now, that doesn't mean that an older patient is not a candidate for doing it under general anesthesia. And if they choose that route and they're a healthy person, I'm fine doing it that way. I want the patient to have a good experience. But, but I'm very comfortable doing things awake, and um, that would be my preference. My next question is, What's the most difficult part about this surgery, facelift in the office? I would say getting used to making an incision in that smash layer, knowing that there are several structures you could injure, and uh, being confident in your ability and being cautious. Um, but you know, just knowing that you know the anatomy, you know what to avoid, and you know that you need to do this to rejuvenate the patient. So that attention to detail is pretty crucial. Right. And then lastly, we've talked about several things that patients should know, but what is something that you would like your prospective patients to know about this procedure, whether it's something that might make or break, whether they're going to do this procedure, or once they've decided and you've agreed that they're a candidate, what is the main thing that you like to express to them that they need to know about that they might not have thought about otherwise? That's a good question. I guess I want them to make sure they feel they're fully informed, that we've discussed everything. I spend a lot of time describing what I'm going to do for them and how I'm going to do it. But sometimes when you're learning a new concept, you don't really comprehend everything someone's trying to tell you the first time. And so we'll often have a second consultation to come back and go, let's go over this one more time. You know, I didn't quite get what you said. I'll make sure I, I know. And I, I love that because then I know that they're paying attention, they're on board, they're participating. And so I want to make sure that they have all their questions answered. And I'd like for them to know that we are going to do things safely, but still be aggressive in our rejuvenation. I mean, we're not going to just do something that I'm not happy with. I'm a perfectionist. I want to give them the best face and jawline and neckline possible. And I'm going to do everything I can to do that for them. Wonderful. Well, you've told us so much today, Dr. Keith Hodge. Is there anything else that you would like to mention about surgery in the office or anything related to that? No, I think the main thing is like we discussed. I mean, a facelift is part of facial rejuvenation. 
And again, I would just say the take-home point today for me would be that the trifecta of facial rejuvenation is a facelifting procedure to rejuvenate the deep structures, adding volume, and treating the skin surface because we all have sun damage as well. So that'd be the trifecta for the most youthful looking face possible. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent approach. I really do. I subscribe to that with my patients and my former patients, and I think it's a really good philosophy. Well, thank you again, Dr. Keith Hodge well, with Monarch Plastic Surgery, and we so appreciate your time and sharing of your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.